This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On October 12th, Mary Catherine had an epiphany. It was just a regular night. You know, her parents were out and she was alone in her bedroom, flipping through the Guinness Book of World Records. She turned to a random page and then suddenly a flash of memory hit her. Mary Catherine waited for her parents to come back home. And when they did, she told them, Dad, I know who took Elizabeth. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I'm super, super excited that you guys are listening to episode 12 of my new podcast. This podcast has been such an amazing journey. Every single day, I'm so excited to work on the show and just share these cases with as many people as possible. So thank you all for all the love and support that you guys have shown this podcast. You guys are truly the best. Today's case has been highly requested. This is a case that gives you hope. Hope that there is happiness after tragedy. Today, we're gonna be talking about what happened to Elizabeth Smart. Some of you might already know what happened to her but some of you might not. I'm familiar with the name Elizabeth Smart and I kind of knew a little bit about what had happened to her but I didn't know all the details so as I was digging deep into this I learned so many things that I didn't know about and this case is truly frightening but it's also inspirational. Just a quick trigger warning we are going to be talking about sexual assault. It's just a very important case to discuss so let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Elizabeth Smart. Elizabeth Ann Smart was born on November 3rd, 1987 in Salt Lake City, Utah. She was the second of six children. There were four boys and two girls in her family, so they were a big group. Her parents were Ed and Lois Smart, and they were all very active members of the LDS Church in Salt Lake City. Ed was a successful real estate agent, while Lois was a homemaker who was fully focused on raising the kids and, you know, just making sure that everything was in order at the house. Now, the Smart family honestly seemed like a picture-perfect family. They lived in an upscale neighborhood in this big, beautiful home. They were Mormon and they followed the values of the religion very closely. And they just had wonderful children. The kids loved being a part of the church and that's where they made so many friends and just created such good memories. As for Elizabeth, she was known as a very kind, smart, shy, and obedient child. She really loved music. You know, playing the harp was something that she absolutely loved to do. And she began playing it at the age of five and she would practice for hours each day. Now the harp is not an easy instrument, so she was obviously very smart and hardworking to be able to learn it at such a young age. Her family loved listening to her play music throughout the house and, you know, she was so good that she was actually sought out to perform as a harpist at local weddings and funerals. She also regularly participated in the annual fall concert at the Capitol Rotunda in Salt Lake City. Now, besides loving music, she also enjoyed playing sports and she was a long-distance runner who was training to compete in cross-country racing. She was also a skilled equestrian and she just loved hanging out with her friends, she loved playing with dolls, and she just loved being with her family. Elizabeth attended Bryant Intermediate School where she was known as a very intelligent and hardworking student. She always got really good grades and she just wanted to make her parents proud. At the time of her disappearance, Elizabeth was 14 years old and she was getting ready to graduate middle school and move on to high school, which she was really excited about. You know, she was so ready for this new change and for this new chapter in her life. Everything just seemed to be going well in the smart household. But unfortunately, that would all change in June of 2002. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's talk about what happened the day before Elizabeth was abducted. It was June 4th, 2002, the day after her grandfather's funeral. Elizabeth's grandfather had been diagnosed with a brain tumor and he had passed away just two months after the diagnosis. So at the time, the family was just feeling very emotional and just very drained. You know, they were just heartbroken after having to attend this funeral. Elizabeth absolutely loved her grandfather, so this was just a hard day for everyone. So that day on June 4th, the family decided to just stay home for a bit, get some rest, but they did have a commitment that they had to go to later that night. The middle school that Elizabeth attended was hosting an award ceremony and Elizabeth was scheduled to play the harp at the event. Now before heading out to the award ceremony, Lois made the family some dinner, but she wasn't really in the right headspace. You know, her father had just died. They were in a rush to get to the ceremony. So she accidentally burnt the potatoes that she was making and she had to go open the kitchen windows. That way the house could air out. After that, the family ate the dinner and then they all headed over to the award ceremony. Now, they actually got there a little bit late. Elizabeth and her younger sister, Mary Catherine, had to run into the school to hurry up and, you know, get everything ready to go on stage. They were actually so late that Elizabeth didn't get to play her harp, but in the end, she did get three awards in physical fitness and in academics. After the ceremony ended, the family got back in the car and they all headed home. At this point, it was pretty late in the night, so as soon as everyone got home, they all started getting ready for bed. The family did their family prayer, and then Elizabeth and her father started locking all of the windows and the doors in the house except for one window, the one in the kitchen because the smell of burnt food was still in the air. Elizabeth and her younger sister, Mary Catherine, actually shared a room together. So they went up to their bedroom. They read a little bit of Ellen Chanted, which is a book that they were reading every single night. And then the two girls went to sleep. At around two o'clock in the morning on June 5th, nine-year-old Mary Catherine woke up to hearing some movement and some noise in the bedroom. Now, just like any other kid her age, she was afraid of the dark and of monsters. So when she looked over to her sister's bed, she saw that there was a shadow of a man looking over Elizabeth's bed. Now, this was really scary for her. She didn't know what to do. She just kind of froze and she stayed as still as possible, hoping that this man or whatever this was would go away. And she was hoping that this figure would think that she was sleeping and wouldn't hurt her. I mean, can you imagine just waking up in the middle of the night and seeing this at such a young age? It was just very scary. Mary Catherine just kind of sat there paralyzed as she waited for this intruder to go away. She watched as this man, who she described to be about 30 years old, held her sister at what she thought was gunpoint. Now, as for what Elizabeth was experiencing at this time, she suddenly woke up and she saw that a man was holding a knife to her throat. He told Elizabeth to not make any sound and to come with her. He told her that if she made any type of noise or if she tried to escape, he would kill her and her family. Now, Elizabeth says that at first she thought that this was just a nightmare, you know, just a terrible bad dream. However, when she felt someone tug at her arm and pull her out of bed, that's when she realized that this was real. This was actually happening to her. Now she was wide awake and she was scared of what this man would do to her or to her family. Because of the fear that she had, she decided to comply. Elizabeth got out of bed and the man was holding the knife to her back and he told her to go to her closet and get a pair of shoes. As she was walking over there, 
there, she actually stubbed her toe and she said, ouch. The man replied and said, you better be quiet and I won't hurt you. Again, Mary Catherine is just listening to this and she's just staying as still as possible. She heard Elizabeth ask the man, why are you doing this? And the man mumbled something like, for ransom. But Mary Catherine did not hear what he said for sure. After they left the bedroom, Mary Catherine listened to every creak on the floor made as this man walked down the hall with Elizabeth until she thought it would be safe enough for her to make a run to her parents' room without being seen by them. So she got up, but she stood at her bedroom door because she saw that the man was forcing her sister to go down the hall. Again, she was so scared, she didn't want to be seen by this man, so she just ran back into bed. She decided to just stay in bed for the next two hours. And again, I just want to emphasize that this is a nine-year-old girl. She was completely terrified, and in her mind, she was thinking, you know, if I stay quiet, if I don't move, then they won't know that I'm here and they won't kidnap me. I'm the only person who has seen this. I'm the only witness to my sister's abduction. About two hours later at four o'clock in the morning, Mary Catherine felt like it was finally safe enough for her to get up. She got out of bed, ran over to her parents' bedroom, and she told them what happened. She said, dad, Elizabeth's gone. And both her parents got up and they raced into the girl's bedroom. At first, they were thinking that maybe Mary Catherine had a nightmare. I mean, this is just something that they didn't think could happen to their family and they lived in such a nice neighborhood. They also thought that maybe the girls had gotten into some type of argument and that Elizabeth had decided to go sleep on the couch. So Ed went to go check the couch. He went to go check the living room everywhere, but there was just absolutely no sign of Elizabeth. Both parents scanned the girl's bedroom just to see if there was any sign of her, but no. As they continued searching around the house, that's when Lois noticed that the window screen of their kitchen had been cut with a knife. That's how the kidnapper got in. He used the window that had been left open since dinner time to get into the house quietly and easily. Lois immediately became hysterical and she yelled at Ed and told him to call the police. I can't imagine what the family was going through in that moment. I mean, knowing that they left the window open to just air out the smell, the smell of burnt potatoes and, you know, not thinking that anything bad would happen because of that. But because of that window, an abductor was able to get into their house and kidnap their daughter. It was just very difficult for the family and they just honestly didn't think that anything sinister would happen because of the window. So at around 4.01 in the morning, the family called 911. The police quickly arrived, but Lois didn't think that they had everything under control. I mean, they didn't seal off the kitchen. They didn't seal off the bedroom or any part of the house as a crime scene. It was as if the police were waiting for someone to tell them what to do or what happened. Lois said, I was bothered that they weren't out there looking for my daughter. Now, since police weren't doing much, at about five o'clock in the morning, Lois and Ed decided to call all of their extended family and, you know, friends in the area and tell them to come over so that they could help find Elizabeth. And by 6 a.m., they were all at the house. Now, it's great that they had all of this help and support from their family and friends, but now there were all these people inside the house contaminating everything, which is not good. But the police officers on scene didn't really think too much about this. They didn't tell the family members to to leave, to wear gloves, nothing. It's just a bit odd. Now, a little bit later, a more experienced officer arrived on the scene and he finally took action and sent every family member to the police station in separate cars. Now, stranger abductions are pretty rare. At the time, the statistic was about 115 confirmed stranger abductions, but the majority of abduction cases are by someone the victim knows, either by a family member or by a family friend, a neighbor, etc. Now, due to these statistics, the Smart family became the number one suspects in the abduction of Elizabeth Smart. And 
I understand that police have to look into everybody, but instead of looking for the real kidnapper, the police spent their time interviewing each member of the Smart family. Now, this must have been very frustrating for them, especially because their daughter, Mary Catherine, literally witnessed this kidnapping. Like she saw someone take Elizabeth, you know, someone that wasn't her family. This is some hard evidence that it wasn't the family that had done this. Now, at the time, the family didn't understand why this was happening. You know, the police were grilling them and, you know, getting deep into this investigation, asking Elizabeth's brothers, Charles and Andrew, questions like, did any of your friends like Elizabeth? Did she run off with someone? And the worst one, did you kill your sister? Yes, they asked that to little children. Ed was also given a polygraph test in addition to his questioning. So while all these interviews are going on, the police brought a cadaver dog over to search the smart house. Now a cadaver dog is meant to find a body. So I feel like they should have brought maybe like search and rescue dogs to help follow Elizabeth's scent, you know, to figure out where she had gone to. But they were already assuming that Elizabeth was dead and that she was somewhere in the house. Now in Mary Catherine's interview, she was able to give police a description of the man that she saw kidnap her sister. She said that he he was white, 30 to 40 years old, and that he was the same height as her brother Charles, making him roughly 5 foot 8. She also said that she recognized his voice. She said it was calm and that she thinks she had heard it before. So after that, the police still wouldn't release any photos or any alerts about Elizabeth's disappearance for another three hours, which is crazy because that time is so precious in cases like these. So the family was all sent home, but they still felt like nothing was being done to find their daughter. That's when the Smart family decided to launch their own search for Elizabeth and they went to the media for help. Elizabeth's disappearance got a lot of attention and her photo was everywhere. The family was asked to do press statements to help raise more awareness and no, Lois was too emotional to do it, so Ed had to do these press conferences alone. Large search parties, with the biggest being 2,000 people, started searching for Elizabeth. After the disappearance, Lois and Ed were just devastated and just besides themselves with grief. Three days after Elizabeth's disappearance, Ed even had a breakdown and he had to be taken to the hospital. Apparently, he hadn't slept at all since Elizabeth went missing and it was just all too much for him and it just broke him. But he quickly checked out of the hospital saying that he felt re-energized. And I'm sure that was more about wanting to get back to looking for his daughter. A reward of $250,000 was set for Elizabeth's rescue by her family for anyone who could offer any information about her whereabouts. Lois recalls that her other children were her pillars throughout all of this and just focusing on raising them and making sure that they were doing okay distracted her from the grief of her missing daughter. You know, she had five other children to take care of and it was just hard for her. She wanted to just go out there every single day to look for Elizabeth, but she also wanted to continue to care for her other children and just make sure that they were okay. Both Ed and Lois particularly wanted to protect Mary Catherine from any further harm because she was already traumatized from witnessing this abduction. The police also suggested that the family not ask Mary Catherine too much information about the case, so that way her memory of the event could stay intact. Mary Catherine was the only witness to this and they wanted to make sure that she had an independent and clear account of what actually happened. Mary Catherine and Lois said that the police actually said do not talk about it because the more you talk about it then she will glean information from those people around her discussing it and then she will not be able to maybe remember what she actually did see or hear. So weeks into Elizabeth being missing the media kind of turned on the smart family. Articles came out saying that the screen was actually cut from the inside meaning that it had been done by a member of the family. Now this actually didn't bother the smarts that much because they were happy that Elizabeth's disappearance was still on the news they believe that only 
help them with their chances of finding her. But still, I can't imagine, you know, having all of these horrible things said about you while you're heartbroken over your daughter's disappearance. An anonymous source actually came out and said that someone in the family failed their polygraph test and that that person was Elizabeth's uncle, David. However, it turned out that he didn't actually fail the test. It actually just turned out to be inconclusive. So polygraph tests are only considered accurate 80 to 90% of the time. There can be a lot of other factors that would change your heart rate other than just the questions being asked. They're actually rarely used in court as evidence because the results are considered inadmissible in court because the results just aren't reliable enough. However, the media decided to really run with the story about the uncle. They ran stories saying that Ed and David were fighting all the time and, you know, all this other stuff, you know, just kind of speculating as to why the uncle might have done it. Now, David says that the reason the test came back inconclusive is because he was tired, he was emotional, he was confused, he was sad. I mean, he had so many emotions going through him because his niece was missing. The family had to have a press conference saying that it wasn't him just to hopefully stop all of these rumors. Now, while the public was focusing on Elizabeth's uncle, thankfully the police weren't and they were fully investigating the idea that an intruder had done this. Now, they learned that over the last few years, the Smart family had over 60 different people working on their home or their property. So they believe that one of these 60 people must be responsible for Elizabeth's kidnapping. You know, these workers knew the family, they knew the kids, they knew the layout of the house. I mean, it was the only thing that made sense to them. So police started focusing in on the workers with criminal histories and they decided to focus their investigation on two guys, Brett Michael Edmonds and Richard Ricci. A milk delivery driver told police that he saw Edmonds' car in the area of the Smart's house on the morning of the abduction. So on June 12th, a nationwide manhunt for Brett Michael Edmonds was announced. I mean, why was this car near the house the day that Elizabeth went missing? On June 14th, Richard, who had previously worked at the Smart home, was also arrested for a theft and burglary charge unrelated to Elizabeth's disappearance. During a questioning with him, the police found a connection between Richard and the Smarts. Richard had done several odd jobs for the Smarts over the years, and he was very well liked by the family and by the children. All the kids would talk to him and they would play with him while he would do all the jobs around the house. He actually drove an old white Jeep that Ed gave him as part of a partial payment for the work that he was doing at the house. Now, this vehicle probably contains Elizabeth's DNA because she had ridden the car for several years before Ed gave it to Richard. So they questioned Richard, but he denied any involvement in Elizabeth's disappearance. However, he did confess to stealing valuable items from the Smart family home. He also had a history of violent crimes in the past, and at the time of Elizabeth's disappearance, he had put hundreds of miles on his Jeep but he refused to tell anyone where he was going or how it happened. So it does sound pretty suspicious, but he didn't match Mary Catherine's description of the man that she saw in her room the night that Elizabeth was abducted. When she saw Richard's photo on the TV as a primary suspect, Mary Catherine said, what's Richard doing there? It wasn't Richard that did this. Then on June 21st, the other guy, Brett Michael Edmonds, was caught at City Hospital in Martinsburg, West Virginia, and he was questioned the next day, but almost immediately after, his name was cleared and he was no longer a suspect. So with only one suspect remaining, and since police were already convinced that Richard was hiding something from them, they came down hard on him to confess. Throughout multiple interrogations and interviews in June and July, Richard denied kidnapping Elizabeth. And then on August 27th, he suddenly suffered a brain aneurysm and he died a few days later on August 30th. And since the police were convinced that Richard did kidnap and kill Elizabeth, they thought his death was the end of her case. Elizabeth's family just felt so defeated. They honestly didn't think that it was 
Richard, but if the cops had given up, what were they supposed to do? So months just passed and now it was October. One night on October 12th, Mary Catherine had an epiphany. It was just a regular night. You know, her parents were out and she was alone in her bedroom flipping through the Guinness Book of World Records. She turned to a random page and then suddenly a flash of memory hit her. Mary Catherine waited for her parents to come back home and when they did, she told them, Dad, I know who took Elizabeth. Ed was shocked. He asked Mary Catherine, who was it? And she said, Emmanuel. At first, Ed and Lois were confused. Like, who is Emmanuel? Like, who is this person and where is this coming from? You know, they knew that Mary Catherine had been reading. So was he a character from one of her books? They were just confused. And, you know, she was only 10 years old at the time. And, you know, kids have such an active imagination. So they just weren't really taking what she was saying seriously. However, as Mary Catherine explained more about who she was talking about, Ed and Lois realized that they did know someone named Emmanuel. He was a man who was panhandling that Lois had given $5 to. And then she hired him to work on the house back in November of last year. Mary said that she remembered his backpack and his voice and that it was the same awful voice that was threatening Elizabeth the night that she went missing. So the Smart family reports this information to the police and they have a sketch artist put together a composite sketch of this man. But you know, police didn't really believe Mary Catherine since it had been so long and these details were only just coming to her now. She told them that she was looking at a picture in the book and suddenly she just knew that it was Emmanuel. You know, maybe she had been looking at that same picture when Emmanuel had come to work at her house and her brain just kind of like made that connection you know something like that could have just jogged her memory however the police wondered if mary catherine was just confused or if maybe she had just kind of like mixed up her thoughts like i said before they had warned ed and lois not to talk to her about the case too much in case her memory of the night became blurry ed did not even remember to add emmanuel's name to the list of people who had worked for them in the past few years so he had never been looked into the police disregarded her statement and they basically said that there was no way it was emmanuel if he was a homeless guy you know and he was just doing all these jobs for you how would he have the transportation to take elizabeth and kidnap her and hold her hostage somewhere they just felt like because he was homeless and because he was kind of like a sketchy guy there was just no way that he did this so because of that the police did not want to release a composite sketch of emmanuel and they just didn't do it which is very frustrating because the family was like i mean what's the harm in putting the sketch out there if it's possible that this guy did kidnap our daughter why can't we just put a sketch everywhere so people can be aware and be on the lookout so since police weren't being very helpful ed and lois decided to sit back and you know just think back to all of their interactions that they had with emmanuel so emmanuel said that he was from pennsylvania or somewhere back east he was very soft-spoken and he didn't talk much about himself ed had actually sat down and chatted with him while he worked on their roof but their conversation was mostly about the bible he told ed that he was living with his sister in the valley and that they had traveled and preached to the homeless ed didn't even realize that emmanuel had seen all of his children when he came into the house but then he remembered that they did have a view of the living room from the skylight, the living room where Elizabeth would play her harp. So maybe while Emmanuel is working on the roof and, you know, looking through the skylight, he saw Elizabeth and he saw her practicing that day and just kind of zoned in on her. That's pretty much how he entered the family's life. It was just an innocent transaction. I mean, Lois just wanted to help him out. You know, she gave him money. Ed gave him a job to do around the house. They honestly never suspected that he would do anything to harm the family. Ed had owed him $50 for the roof job, 
but had only paid him 40 at the time. In December, John Walsh, who was a passionate victims' rights activist and the former host of America's Most Wanted, I've mentioned him on this channel before, he actually went on the Larry King show and he talked about Elizabeth Smart and about everything that was happening. He said that the Smart family didn't believe Richard was a kidnapper and said that Mary Catherine had given the police a description of the real guy. But still, that sketch wasn't released to the public. On February 3rd, 2003, the next year, the police finally released the sketch of Emmanuel and Ed goes on the news holding the sketch up. And because of this, a couple of tips start to come in saying that someone fitting the description of Emmanuel kept coming into a super salad restaurant. So Elizabeth's uncle David brings a photo into this restaurant and he asks the waitress if she had seen him. The waitress said yes, that he always comes in with his wife and that she thought they were kind of part of like a cult or something like that. She also said that the last time he came into the restaurant, he was there with two women and one was younger. By February 15, 2003, the John Walsh's show, America's Most Wanted, featured Emmanuel and asked for any information regarding him. And on February 16th, the family of the man in the sketch came forward to police. It turns out that Emmanuel's real name is Brian, and his family says that they think the person in the photo, you know, the sketch, is actually Brian David Mitchell, and they think that he did it, that he abducted Elizabeth. The family started helping the police put a lot of the pieces together. So here's what we know about Brian. Brian David Mitchell was born in 1953 in Salt Lake City, Utah, and he was also from a Mormon family. He had five siblings, and the similarities in the families were actually one of the many reasons why he targeted the smart family. He wanted to target a Mormon family because he would understand how their minds worked and how to manipulate them versus someone who wasn't religious. When Brian was 16, he sexually assaulted an eight-year-old girl by exposing himself to her and telling her to touch him. Brian was charged for this, but since he was 16, he was only sentenced to a juvenile facility. He was actually released from this facility when he was 19 years old. Quickly after that, he got married to a 17-year-old woman named Karen and they actually had two children together but they were not good parents. They drank, they partied, and they just didn't take care of the children. Brian and Karen decided to divorce, and on the day of their custody hearing, Brian kidnapped his kids and took them to New Hampshire where they stayed for two years in a commune. After that, he returned to Salt Lake City. Brian, who I guess never got charged for kidnapping his children, got remarried to a woman named Debbie, who already had three kids of her own. Now their marriage ended quickly though because Debbie said that he was very abusive towards her and that Brian was inappropriate with her three-year-old Son. In an attempt to somehow save his marriage, Brian put his two children in foster care, but obviously that didn't work because his kids weren't the problem. He was. So Brian and Debbie officially divorced in 1984. One of Debbie's daughters later confessed that Brian had been assaulting her for years. So as you can see, this guy is just not a good guy. He's just disturbing, he's terrible, and I don't understand how he got away with so much. Now after all of this, he quickly got married again to a woman named Wanda Barcy, who was 40 years old and she had six kids. However, Wanda was also not a good mother and her children actually all say that she was abusive and she was just a terrible person in general. General. So Wanda and Brian had that in common, that they were both members of the LDS church and they were very big believers in religion and that they were both terrible people. Now, Brian actually believed that he was a prophet or at least that's what he said. So Brian decides that since he's a chosen one from God, he should have a different name. He names himself Emmanuel and he named Wanda Hepsima. He went to his church saying that he was a chosen one, but the church didn't believe him and they actually kicked him out. However, Brian decided to double down and he started wearing white robes. He grew 
throughout his hair, his beard, and he would stand on the street and he would just scream out Bible verses to people walking by. He also wrote a 72-page book of all of his visions and beliefs and whatever else came to his mind. I mean, Brian was acting so crazy that even his own mother had to get a restraining order against him. Now, as for Wanda's family, when they saw the sketch on America's Most Wanted, they said that they knew the man in the photo and that they believed that he did kidnap Elizabeth and that this is something that him and Wanda were capable of doing. I mean, it's not even something that they questioned. The family say that they haven't been able to get in contact with either Brian or Wanda in months and that a kidnapping, again, is something that they would do. So they just felt like this was truly them. Now, because of all of this, on February 17th, more recent and actual photos of Brian were released to the public. And then on March 12th, two 2003 in Sandy, Utah, two different people called police and said that they saw Brian with Elizabeth in a Walmart. Police rushed there and they completely surrounded the place. When Brian, Wanda, and Elizabeth came outside of the Walmart, police demanded everyone's ID, but Brian said that they didn't have any because he had given up all of his earthly possessions to be a messenger for God. And he also said that Elizabeth was his daughter. Now, Elizabeth was too scared to talk, but luckily the police knew for sure that it was her. She was also only wearing a wig and sunglasses as a disguise. Despite her disguise, the police knew that this was Elizabeth. However, Elizabeth actually told them that they were wrong. She was just so terrified that if something went wrong, she would be sent back to Brian and Wanda and she just didn't want to make them mad. So police knew that they had to separate them and they put Elizabeth into a cop car so that they could talk to her at the station all alone. They asked Elizabeth in the car if she is Elizabeth Smart and all she says is, thou sayeth. So they put Elizabeth into an interrogation room and they left the room. And when the doors opened, Elizabeth looked up to see her father, Ed. Ed asked her, is it really you? And Elizabeth said, yes, and they both started to cry. After being held captive by Brian and Wanda for nine hellish months, Elizabeth was finally found and reunited with her family. So that same day that Elizabeth said that she was Elizabeth and that her father went to go pick her up, that same day, Brian and Wanda were arrested and they were put into holding. Okay, so now that Elizabeth has been found, she has come out and she has spoken about what she went through during her disappearance. For a while, all we had was the family's perspective, but now we could finally understand and see what Elizabeth had gone through during this terrible time. And again, I just want to put another trigger warning that what I'm going to discuss next is heavy and we're going to talk about sexual assault. So as we know, the day that Elizabeth was abducted, Brian threatened her by saying, I have a knife to your neck, don't make a sound, get out of bed and come with me or I will kill you and your family. And he used that to lure her out of the house. So Elizabeth hears all of this and she gets up and Brian has a knife to her back and he walks her out of the house and up to a hill nearby. Now the whole time he keeps repeating that if Elizabeth runs or screams, that he'll kill her and then go back to her house and kill her family. As they were walking, a police car actually approached them and Elizabeth just felt so much relief. You know, she felt like she was going to be saved. However, Brian pushed her behind a bush and he was able to hide from the police car. He tells Elizabeth to be quiet and he's also quiet. However, he does say to himself, if this work is true, God, let this car pass. And it did. So Elizabeth and her kidnapper continued walking up this mountain. So the anticipation of what Elizabeth thought was going to happen just kind of became too much for her. And she said to Brian, can you just write me and kill me now so that my parents know what happened to me? I mean, that's how desperate she was. And that's how, you know, distraught she felt in that moment. She felt like there was no hope. However, Brian just smiled at her and said, quote, I'm not going to kill you yet. Also, just for everyone listening so that you're aware, it's actually highly recommended by law enforcement that if someone is trying to kidnap you, 
even if they have a weapon, that instead of complying with them, you should fight with your life in that moment instead of going with them to a secondary location. Now, the reason for that is because you have a better chance of survival if you're in a public place rather than the private place that this person is trying to take you to. So Elizabeth and Brian go off the main road and they turn into a trail called Dry Creek Canyon onto this mountain, which again is not too far away from her house. Now Elizabeth is trying anything she can to try and make this guy back out of doing whatever he plans on doing. So she tells him, you're never going to get away with this. You're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. You know, she tries to convince him to stop doing this. She also told him, if you let me go, I will not tell my parents to press charges and they will never look for you. They can just pretend that none of this ever happened. However, Brian told her i know exactly what i'm doing and i know what the consequences are the only difference is i'm not going to get caught now elizabeth is looking at her kidnapper when suddenly she realizes who he is She's met this man before. Seven months before the night Elizabeth got abducted, her siblings and her mom had gone out shopping. While they were walking around, they came across a man on the street who was asking for money. Elizabeth's mom, Lois, had given him $5. Now, Elizabeth remembers him being nice and telling Lois that his name was Emmanuel. Lois had actually given him her husband's phone number because she thought that they could maybe give him a job, you know, doing some work around the house. So Emmanuel did follow up on this offer and not long after that, Ed hired Emmanuel to come to the house cut down some trees and just work on the house's roof. So Elizabeth knew this man. He has been inside their home before, but why was he doing this to her? She started confronting him saying, you know, you shouldn't do this because my family was nice to you. And she was just trying to remind him, you know, my family gave you money and gave you stuff, but this guy just didn't care. So Elizabeth and Brian are still hiking this mountain as the sun is coming up and he starts to get very worried because she's wearing these bright red pajamas. So he's worried that someone will see her, but Elizabeth didn't get seen. They arrive at Brian's camp, which has a trap on the ground and a tent. And he says that his wife is waiting for him. Now, the news of a wife being there actually gave Elizabeth some hope. You know, she's thinking maybe they don't want to kill her. Maybe they want her to be their kid or something like that. You know, the wife really made Elizabeth think that she was going to be safer. So the wife, who I mentioned earlier, is Wanda, appeared from behind a tree and she was wearing a long white robe and she came up to Elizabeth and just hugged her. But it wasn't like a comforting hug. It was a hard hug. After this, she took Elizabeth into the tent and she washed her feet. She told Elizabeth to take off her clothes and put on a robe. Of course, Elizabeth was terrified, so she said no. But the wife said, if you don't, Brian is going to have to do it for you. So Elizabeth got undressed and she put on the robe and then she sat on a bucket. The wife left the tent and then soon after, Brian entered it. He started to perform a marriage ceremony, if you even want to call it that. And he declared that him and Elizabeth were now married in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Then he said that they had to consummate the marriage, meaning that they had to have sex. Again, just a trigger warning. This is when Brian then raped Elizabeth. After it was over, Elizabeth had to deal with the trauma of the assault, but also as a Mormon, she was saving herself for marriage and so much of her worth was put into her virginity and she just didn't even feel like a worthy person anymore, which is just so heartbreaking that that is something that she had to go through on top of the assault. Now, Elizabeth thought about other children that she had heard about on the news being murdered and she was thinking that they were lucky, that they were the lucky ones, especially because they got to go to heaven, but she still has to be at this camp with her kidnapper who's doing all of these horrible things to her. Elizabeth decided that she was going to make a run for it, but she had just hiked up the mountain and she was awake all night long, so she didn't have the energy to do it in that moment. So instead, she decided to just take a nap. However, when she woke up, she saw that Brian was tying her leg with a metal cord to a tree. 
After that, she was only able to move around 20 feet around this tree. They also burned her pajamas, so now all she had to wear was this white robe. Now, three days later, Elizabeth actually heard her name being called. Now, this was on the third day of the search parties, the one that I had mentioned earlier, and she recognized this voice as her uncle's voice. However, Brian heard it too and said that if she made any sound, he would kill her and her whole family. So Elizabeth stayed silent. I know some people might judge Elizabeth for staying quiet, but you don't know how you would react in this situation. She was only 14 years old and he was pointing a knife at her and he had been threatening her for all of these days. So she was just scared and that's why she felt like she couldn't say anything. For the next few days, Elizabeth was just tied up listening to Brian and Wanda rant about random Bible verses. Brian also told Elizabeth that he was an angel and a Davidic king, meaning that he was part of the bloodline from the Hebrew Messiah. He also said he would emerge in seven days and be stoned by a mob then lie dead in the streets for days before rising up to kill the Antichrist. He also told Elizabeth that she was only one of many wives that he was going to soon have. He also made Elizabeth change her name and she had to pick a new one from the Bible. So she picked Esther. Elizabeth endured a lot of abuse while she was on this camp. She was repeatedly raped on a daily basis. Elizabeth says that she tried to fight him off, but you know, a 14-year-old girl going against a grown man, it just doesn't even out. She was also physically abused as well as sometimes starved for days. Other times she was only fed garbage and she was hardly given any water. They really put her through so much and besides the physical abuse, Brian would also emotionally abuse her and just try to mess with her mind as much as possible. He just wanted to break her and he would tell her that if she ever did escape and that people found out that she was no longer a virgin, that nobody would want to interact with her and that nobody would even want her because she was used. Elizabeth had to do whatever Brian and his wife said to and they even made her look at porn and drink alcohol and take drugs since those are things that are not allowed in the Mormon religion. Brian said that she had to experience all of the sins of the earth before she could become truly pure. Now Wanda eventually became jealous of Elizabeth since her husband was giving Elizabeth all of his attention. So Brian decided to divide up his time giving the wife and Elizabeth a schedule of basically when they were going to be his wife, with Elizabeth getting nights and then the wife Wanda getting the mornings, which is just crazy to me. I mean, there was a time after this that Elizabeth and Brian went to go get water and he actually tried to rape her there, but she said he couldn't because of the schedule. He obviously wasn't worried about these rules that he had made up and said that his wife Wanda would never know about this, but Elizabeth said that she would tell her. And this actually stopped Brian from raping Elizabeth that day. This was the first time Elizabeth was listened to while there, so she felt a little glimmer of power. Elizabeth would also cope by trying to sleep as much as possible to, you know, make the time go by faster because all day long she just had to endure all of this terrible abuse. But if she was asleep, then she didn't have to go through it. She also prayed all the time, hoping for a miracle. Weeks into Elizabeth's abduction, Brian tells her that he's at a revelation and that he's going to be taking his next wife soon and that that wife is going to be her cousin Olivia. Olivia was only 14 years old. Now, when Elizabeth heard this, she tried to talk him out of it because of course she didn't want her cousin to also get abducted. However, he didn't want to change his mind. On July 24th, he got together his knife, duct tape, and some extra clothes, and then he left the campsite and he headed over to Olivia's house. Brian gets to Olivia's house and he decides to use his same technique of going through the window. He tries to cut open the window screen, but he accidentally knocks over some framed photos with the knife. And luckily, this woke up Olivia's mother, who then got up, went into the room, turned on the lights, and she actually saw Brian still trying to cut the screen open. She started screaming, and that's when Brian decided to take off running. She immediately called 911 and told them that 
they're related to Elizabeth Smart and that she felt like this incident had some type of connection. I mean, what are the odds that Elizabeth was abducted and then her cousin was also almost abducted? It was just too much of a connection, but police didn't agree with her. The police felt like this was an unrelated incident or that maybe someone was just trying to play a joke on the family, you know, kind of just poking fun at what they were going through, which is crazy to me. I'm like, how do they not see that this is a coincidence? It just, it's insane how police were acting. So after this, Brian returned without Olivia and Elizabeth was just so relieved that his plan had failed. Of course, she didn't want her cousin to go through what she was going through. So after being there for 50 days, Elizabeth was able to convince Brian to unchain her from the tree that she had been tied to this whole time. Brian agreed to this, but said that if Elizabeth even attempted to run away, he would kill her and her whole family. And of course, she believed this, so she actually didn't try to run away. That is, until one day when Brian was really drunk. Elizabeth saw that this was an opportunity to make a break for it, but he quickly noticed that she was gone and he made his wife Wanda chase her down and catch her. The wife then threatened Elizabeth and when they returned to camp, Brian beat her and said that if she ever tried that again, she would be chained up again. Days later, Brian and his wife Wanda got into an argument. Now, the wife was bored and she kind of just missed things about her old life, you know, like rather than them being isolated in the secret camp. This argument ended with Brian agreeing to leave the camp, but he actually wanted Elizabeth to go with them. Now, kidnappers taking their victims in public isn't as rare as you might think. There have been many other cases where kidnappers do that, but only when they believe that they have full control over over their victims. So to keep Elizabeth hidden while out in public, Brian put a veil over her so all you could see were her eyes. Now they didn't just go out in public one time. This trip into the city actually became almost like a regular routine that they would do together. They would panhandle for money and Brian would also steal food and money which he called plundering. On one of their trips, they passed a house that was hosting an open party. They had flamethrowers in the front and you know, just a lot of people were there. So they decided to go. Yeah, they literally decided to go to a party. The party was being thrown by an collective so no one at the party recognized Elizabeth because of the veil that she was wearing and someone there even took a photo of her and Brian which is just so crazy to me like looking at this photo it just feels so eerie so there's actually another person in this photo and that guy actually said to Elizabeth that night that she should get away from Brian because he's an asshole yeah so he thought that Elizabeth was just dating Brian and didn't realize that she was his literal prisoner in interviews since then, that person from the party has cried about how sorry he is that he didn't realize what was happening and that he didn't do more to save Elizabeth. Later on at the party, someone came up to Brian and gave him a handle, which is a 40 ounce bottle of homemade absinthe. And Brian drank as much of it as he could until someone finally took it away from him. So at this point, he was absolutely wasted and he was just starting to cause a scene at the party. So after this, all three of them, Brian, Wanda, and Elizabeth all get kicked out of the party and Elizabeth was too terrified of Brian to say anything to anyone at the party or to even ask for help, which again, we cannot judge her because she was 14 years old. She was under all of these threats from him. And again, you just don't know how you would react in that moment. Also, all of these people are strangers. So who knows if anyone would actually believe her or what Brian would do to her if he saw her trying to get away or trying to get help. So the three of them just left the party. They went back up the mountain to their camp. So in late August, with the summer ending and winter approaching, they knew that the camp wouldn't be a livable place anymore because of the cold. So that's when Brian decided to move them to California where it would be warmer. So the three of them go into the public library called City Library so they can do some research on where exactly to move to. However, while at this library, someone actually recognized Elizabeth and they called 911. A detective came down to the library, but he decided to act more, you know, subtle rather than just going in guns blazing type of thing. 
so he waits for Brian to go to the bathroom before he approaches Elizabeth and his wife Wanda. The detective says that they're looking for Elizabeth and he asks both of them to remove their veils, but before they can, Brian quickly comes back and stops them. He says to the detective that Elizabeth is his daughter and that it's against their religion to remove their veils. The detective still tried to make them do this, but he said that Brian was so calm and just kind of, you know, relaxed about it that it kind of convinced him that this was a religious thing. So the detective believed him. Now, during this conversation, Wanda had a tight grip on Elizabeth's thigh, you know, in a threatening way, basically meaning like, don't say anything. So of course, Elizabeth was scared to speak during this entire thing. After the detective left, Elizabeth said, quote, I felt like hope was walking out of the door. Honestly, it just makes me feel like sick, you know, knowing that a police officer saw this happen and just let them go. You know, he could have gone into a room and had them remove their veils or the detective could have just done more. He could have asked Elizabeth to go somewhere alone to speak to her, but none of that happened. They literally just let them go. It really just breaks my heart that Elizabeth felt that in that moment, she had to stay quiet because she truly feared for her life and for her family's life. Again, this couple had threatened her new numerous times and they told her that if she ever did anything to try to escape then everyone she loved would be dead. So just imagine you know being 14 years old and going through something like this. Of course you're scared and this is something that we're going to get into a little bit later but it's not like Elizabeth stayed quiet because she didn't want to be found and she wanted to stay with her kidnappers. She stayed quiet because she truly felt like this was the only option that she had in order to survive. So a few days after the library incident, the three of them got into a bus and they headed to San Diego. Now, during this time, Brian was even arrested for shoplifting on September 27th, but he was let go, so he was on the police's radar in some type of way. On September 28th, Brian, Wanda, and Elizabeth were actually spotted in the town of Lakeside in San Diego, California. Now, when I heard San Diego, I was like, what? Like, I never knew about that. Like I mentioned at the start of the video, I had heard about Elizabeth Smart, but I didn't know all the details. So I I had no idea that they were in San Diego at one point and it's just eerie because I'm from San Diego so knowing that they were there is just kind of creepy. So they actually set up a new camp in a secluded area near Lakeside and it was very dirty and not surprisingly had pretty disgusting living conditions. Elizabeth was becoming more hopeless that she would never be saved and she just wanted to find a way to numb the pain. So she would ask for more alcohol. One night she drank so much that she was puking and she actually woke up with puke in her hair. Now when they were in San Diego, Elizabeth says that Brian began looking for his next wife and that he was checking out local churches for young girls. One day, he went to a church in El Cajon and while he was there, he was looking for young girls. Brian went to a local LDS church and that's when he met a man named Beryl Kemp. Now, of course, he didn't make it seem obvious that he was there looking for young girls and was trying to find his new wife. He just made it seem like he was a nice guy. So because he seemed so nice, Beryl actually invited him to dinner at their family home. And while Brian was at dinner, he spotted a picture of a young girl on the family's piano. And that's when he learned that the girl was the hostess's daughter from a previous marriage who visited every other weekend and on Wednesdays. Now, when Brian saw the photo of this girl, he decided that she was going to be his next wife. So after leaving the family dinner, he went back to the campsite and he was actually bragging about what his plan was. He was bragging about this to Wanda and to Elizabeth and Elizabeth was just like, I mean, what am I supposed to do? How can I stop him from going out and finding this new wife? Later that night, he left the campsite wearing the same dark clothing and carrying the same knife that he used to kidnap Elizabeth. He went to the family's home, 
opened the door, but that's when he heard a man snoring, so he decided to leave. Elizabeth says that most people find snoring to be really annoying, but that in that moment, this snoring saved this young girl's life when she was literally about to be abducted and put through the same thing that Elizabeth was put through. Thankfully, the girl was not abducted, but it was very scary for Elizabeth to watch this happen and just know that there wasn't anything that she could do about it. Days after this, a hiker got too close to their camp, so they actually moved further away from society. Days after that, Brian showed Elizabeth a newspaper article about her disappearance and, you know, she was so happy to know that her parents hadn't given up on her. Brian was actually surprised that they hadn't given up yet, since in his mind, Elizabeth was his now. Now, while Elizabeth was in captivity, she fantasized about what it would be like if she was actually rescued. So this is how she imagined her rescue would be. She said that instead of after being taken to California for the winter, they would all return to Salt Lake City where the police would stop them and question them. Then an officer would eventually recognize her despite her being in her disguise. And then not long afterwards, she would be reunited in her father's arms. That's what Elizabeth would fantasize about. And just having that picture in her mind, you know, of what it would be like to be rescued is what helped Elizabeth keep going. And she said that thinking about this is the few times that she would feel safe in those nine months because it would give her hope that maybe this would happen. Maybe she would be rescued and finally be reunited with her family. So Elizabeth's 15th birthday passed and then Halloween passed, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And Elizabeth spent all of these important holidays with her kidnappers. Elizabeth went to a big holiday meal event for homeless people and again, her photo was taken, but she was still wearing the veil so no one recognized her. In February of 2003, none of them had any food or water in three days. So Brian left Elizabeth and his wife at the camp to go and find some food and water. And Elizabeth didn't really think she was going to live until he came back. That's how starved and dehydrated she was. And Elizabeth actually made peace with the fact that she was about to die. And she just kind of laughed, you know, like how funny after everything she went through, this is how she dies of starvation. But suddenly it started to rain. And for those of you not from San Diego or California, it literally never rained. So this was almost like a miracle. Elizabeth was able to drink the rainwater and this was her sign that she had to keep going. After a few days, Brian finally returned to the camp. So he comes back and while he was gone, he had purchased just alcohol and prescription drugs. And then he had actually been MIA because he had been arrested for breaking into an LDS church in El Cajon on February 12, 2003. Now he wasn't recognized as a man wanted in Utah for kidnapping Elizabeth. So when he was arrested, he was actually able to talk his way out of it with the judge and he was released. Days Later, a helicopter flew over them and Elizabeth prayed that someone would jump out of the helicopter and save her, but no one did. The helicopter made Brian so paranoid that they were too visible. So Brian started thinking about where they should go next and he was thinking about a city like Chicago. Elizabeth knew that the further she got from Utah, the less her chances were of being found. So that's when she decided to make a plan. She told Brian that God had spoken to her and told her that they had to go back to Utah so that Brian could get more wives. And the plan worked. Brian believed her and he agreed that they should all return to Utah. So on March 5th, 2003, they decided to hitchhike all the way back from San Diego to Utah because they didn't have any money and they didn't have another way to get there. Brian dressed up Elizabeth in a disguise that consisted of a gray wig and black sunglasses since their robes and veils could look intimidating to potential rides and they were really trying to make this hitchhiking thing work. So they eventually made it back to Utah and at this point, Brian was more comfortable than before with bringing Elizabeth out in public. They went 
went to this restaurant called Super Salads, which we now know was very helpful in Elizabeth being found. Now, a passerby recognized Brian walking with Elizabeth, who was veiled and wearing a wig and sunglasses. This witness said that he recognized Elizabeth because her face was everywhere and, you know, all over the news. But he also recognized Brian because of the sketch that appeared on America's Most Wanted that had been drawn in memory of Mary Catherine from the night of the kidnapping. Because remember, she saw Elizabeth get abducted and she saw the man that did this. So she helped create the sketch and because of this sketch, this witness spotted Brian and spotted Elizabeth, which as we know was very helpful in Elizabeth's investigation. So someone spotted her, they called the police and police arrived to the scene. Authorities then arrested Brian and his wife and they returned Elizabeth to her family that same evening. So now we're caught up on both sides. We talked about what the family went through and their perspective of it and what Elizabeth was going through in this difficult and terrible time. So going back to the family's point of view, when Elizabeth was found, when they heard the news, they just couldn't believe it. Her father, Ed, said that he received a phone call telling him to come to the Sandy City Police Department and to not talk to anyone, to not stop and to just get there as quickly as he could. Now, while he was on his way, Ed called the family spokesperson, Thomas, who was very active in the investigation and just helped the family get through this difficult time. So he called Thomas and he told him about what was going on and they both just started immediately driving to the police station and even though they didn't tell them oh we found Elizabeth, Thomas just had a feeling so he actually called a friend who was a detective for the Sandy Police Department and he asked his friend is it Elizabeth and this friend said Yes, we brought in a teenager that we believe is Elizabeth Smart. He just took a deep breath and he was just trying to hold back tears and he asked the friend, where did you find the body? And the friend replied, what body? She's in the room next to me. She's alive. You just imagine hearing that. I mean, Elizabeth went missing for nine months. And while it's always amazing to have hope and to wish and pray that this person will be returned safely and alive, that's not always the ending with these cases. So the fact that he was hearing that Elizabeth might've been found, his first thought was, where's the body? You know, that just shows how it's not super common for things to end like this. So it's truly a miracle that Elizabeth was found alive. So as Ed pulls up to the police station, he was really afraid to go inside because at this point, Point, he had no idea that his daughter was found alive. So he was just scared of what he was going to hear as soon as he walked through the doors. So he was still talking to Thomas on the phone and that's when Thomas decided to just tell him the good news. And he told Ed that his daughter was alive and that she was waiting for him. Thomas says that after that, the phone just went quiet. So Ed walked into the police station, he opened the door, and that's when he saw Elizabeth sitting there. He didn't even hesitate, he just immediately ran over to her, he grabbed her, and he started hugging her. And this just makes me so emotional because I can't imagine how that moment finally felt, you know, just reunited with your daughter after so many months and just knowing that she was alive. So after being reunited with her family, Elizabeth started to heal while also seeking justice for what happened to her. She made her first public appearance since being reunited with her family on April 30th, 2003. And on October 27th of that year, Elizabeth sat down and did a whole Dateline interview about what happened to her. The family took some time to give Elizabeth the natural and simple childhood that she deserved. So now that we're caught up on Elizabeth's story, let's go back to what happened after Brian and Wanda were arrested. In interrogations, Brian acted like he was full-on religious nut, kind of trying to make it look like he was manic or something like that, probably so he could get away with what he did. But the investigators could tell that this was all just an act and that Brian was going to try to use mental illness 
illness as a way to get out of his crimes. You know, like he was trying to be found not guilty due to mental insanity. On March 18th, 2003, Brian and Wanda were officially charged with aggravated kidnapping, aggravated sexual assault, and aggravated burglary. Now, Brian was actually deemed mentally fit to stand his trial. And in 2004, his trial began. He agreed to plead guilty to kidnapping and to burglary in exchange for a 10 to 15 year sentence. And this also meant that Elizabeth wouldn't have to testify against him. However, the prosecution actually refused this plea deal because it would mean the sexual assault charges would be dropped and they were not going to allow that. So in his trial, Brian would try to act as mentally incompetent as possible. And in February of 2005, Brian's defense lawyer officially filed a statement saying that Brian was no longer competent to stand trial. However, the security who saw Brian on a daily basis at the jail said that Brian was acting totally normal when he wasn't in the courtroom. So he didn't believe that Brian was actually mentally unstable. On July 26, 2005, a judge declared that Brian had psychosis and that he was incompetent to stand trial meaning that he lacked the ability to help prepare a defense for himself because of his mental state. And on August 11th, 2005, he was checked into the Utah State Hospital. Everyone who worked at this hospital also said that Brian didn't seem to be mentally ill or to be having psychosis. In February of 2006, Utah passed a bill allowing prosecutors to apply for defendants to be forcibly medicated so that they could be competent enough to stand on trial. So the prosecutors applied and they were able to have Wanda medicated, but not Brian. Apparently in Brian's case it was unnecessarily harsh which is just crazy i mean how come they can medicate wanda but they can't medicate brian and on top of that how is it unnecessarily harsh when he literally abducted someone for nine months raped her abused her i mean it's just very strange that they're saying this so after this brian returned to trial but after yelling random religious statements at the judge on december 18th 2006 brian is once again declared unfit to stand trial now this must have been so frustrating for elizabeth and for her family i mean elizabeth lived with him she should be allowed to tell them that he was mentally fit the whole time now yes mental illness is a real problem and some people are really unfit to defend themselves but in this case brian was knowingly taking advantage of the system so brian stayed in the hospital until 2008 before being transferred back to jail during this time brian had several more evaluations and he continued to be deemed unfit to stand trial however in october of 2009 elizabeth decided to testify at one of brian's court hearings so that she could finally get justice Elizabeth testified that Brian is smart, articulate, evil, wicked, manipulative, sneaky, slimy, selfish, greedy, not spiritual, not religious, not close to God. Those are literally her words. After this, on November 17th, 2009, Wanda actually pleaded guilty and she was sentenced to just 15 years. Brian was still evaluated one more time by Dr. Michael Wellner. This doctor watched 57 interviews with Brian, was consulted with 210 sources, and he said that Brian was fit to stand trial. He also said that Brian was a very manipulative person who just was using religion to make people think that he was delusional. So on March 1st, 2010, Brian was officially declared fit to stand on trial. His trial began on November 8th, 2010, and Brian's lawyers tried to use the insanity defense, but the jury didn't fall for it. And on December 10th, 2010, Brian was found guilty of kidnapping a minor with intent to engage in sexual activity. His sentencing happened on May 25th, 2011 and he was sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. On September 11th, 2018, the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole announced that Wanda would be scheduled to be released on September 19th 
as in one week later. Now at that point, Wanda had only served nine years, but the board said that this was because they had failed to give her credit for time served in federal prison, which would make her total time 15 years. Now Elizabeth actually spoke out against this, saying that it wasn't enough time and that Wanda was a danger to society. However, Wanda was still released, but she was put on parole under federal supervision for five years, and she was also registered as a sex offender. On December 31st, 2018, just three months after Wanda's release, it was revealed that she was living near a Salt Lake City elementary school. There appeared to be no restrictions as to how close she can live to a school, even though Utah state rules disallow her from going on school property. Now, parents and the neighbors were very upset about this, but unfortunately, they can't make her move. Now, let's talk about where Elizabeth is now. After being held captive for nine months and enduring such traumatic and frightening things, Elizabeth was returned to her family and she's now been able to lead somewhat of a normal life. She actually returned to school and she resumed doing some of her favorite activities, which was spending time with her family, going to church and playing music. After graduating from high school in 2006, she enrolled in university studying music as a heart performance major. In April of 2008, Elizabeth's dad, Ed, appeared on Madeline McCann's One Year On, while in November of the same year, People Magazine featured Elizabeth Smart as one of their heroes of the year. In the article, Elizabeth said that she planned to live in England next year. It's just really moving to see that Elizabeth was able to heal and build a life for herself with her family's help despite everything that she went through. In 2009, she actually moved to Paris for her church's missionary trip, but this trip was interrupted because she had to go back to the United States to testify against Brian. However, while she was in Paris, she actually met a fellow missionary named Matthew, and the two of them ended up hitting it off. They began dating, and then the two married in Hawaii in February of 2012. And now they have three beautiful children together, which makes me so happy. Her family is really beautiful and it just warms my heart to know that Elizabeth is surrounded by so much love and happiness these days. That's exactly what she needed after going through something so traumatic. She has this Instagram page where she shares things about her personal life and about what's going on with her, but she also uses it as a platform to bring awareness to sexual violence and to share resources of what you can do if you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault. Now, for a while, Elizabeth saw March 12th as a bad day. It just reminded her of the day that she was rescued and everything that she had gone through during those terrible nine months. But now, 20 years later, she has changed her perspective. Now she says that March 12th is nothing but a good day, nothing but a happy day. To her, it's the biggest miracle in her life, so it's definitely a good day now. Now, while pretty much everyone was happy that Elizabeth was found and that she was returned to her family, there were some haters, which I think is crazy. Like, how can someone have anything negative to say about Elizabeth or about victims of something like this? It's just crazy that she has negativity. So I was looking through Elizabeth's Instagram page, and a couple of weeks ago, she made this post talking about how victim blaming needs to stop. In this video, she was talking about how a few weeks after she was rescued, she went to church with her family and she had a cold during this time. So during the service, she excused herself to go to the bathroom and blow her nose. Well, a lady followed her into the bathroom, someone she didn't even know, and this lady started accusing her of actually wanting to be with her captor, Brian. Yes, this grown lady was talking to this teenage girl, accusing her of actually wanting to be with this crazy man. Elizabeth just couldn't believe this. I mean, imagine hearing that. You just went through the worst nine months of your life. You're finally rescued and you feel safe with your family at home. But then this horrible person starts accusing you of these 
these terrible things. It was terrible and Elizabeth just immediately shut down. Thankfully, her sister walked into the bathroom and saved her. It's really sad that this happened and the reason that Elizabeth brings this up is because she wants to make a point that sometimes consent is because you are in survival mode and that it's the only safe choice in the moment. So it's not like she consented to everything that happened to her because she wanted it. It's because that sometimes feels like the only option you have to continue to survive another day until you figure out how to get out of the situation. There is such a thing as unwilling consent. Emily Nagoski, who is a renowned sex educator, said that unwilling consent is, quote, when I fear the consequences of saying no more than I fear the consequences of saying yes. Elizabeth wanted to clarify that she never said yes to her captors, but that she did have the survival mindset on, as do many other sexual assault survivors. I really appreciate that she shared this because I'm sure it was hard for her to relive that situation and, you know, knowing that someone says something so brutal to her. But it's very true what she said, you know, that there is unwilling consent and that sometimes you just have to do things for survival. There are even people that have asked her, and I just want to put a trigger warning of what I'm going to say, but people have asked her, how are you able to have sex after experiencing so much rape and sexual trauma? Which I know is a bold question. Even just saying that out loud just feels a little bit weird, but I get why people are curious about this and they just wonder how Elizabeth is able to be intimate with her husband after going through something so traumatic. Now, Elizabeth says that there's a very big difference between sex and rape. For example, for her, sex is entered by choice and it's based off a relationship built on trust and mutual love and that it's more than just a physical act. It's about love, connection, and pleasure. While on the other hand, rape is forced, coerced, manipulative, and often violent. It's not only physically painful, but it's also emotionally and spiritually painful and devastating. I mean, this is just an example of how open Elizabeth is about speaking on these serious and very heavy topics. The fact that Elizabeth is able to start a conversation about this and speak about something that is very intimate and very triggering is very admirable. Like I've mentioned, she just wants people to learn and be more educated about this. So she even said on that Instagram post, you know, if you guys have your own differences between rape and sex, you know, please feel free to add them to the Instagram post to start like a very respectful and just educational conversation. I just hope that Elizabeth doesn't let the hate get to her because there are so many positive people that do support her and just want her to be happy. Elizabeth eventually wrote a book which was on the New York Times bestselling list called My Story. In addition to writing her book, she and another abduction survivor worked with the Department of Justice to create a survivor's guide called You're Not Alone, The Journey from Abduction to Empowerment. Now, this guide is meant to encourage children who have gone through similar experiences and to not give up, but to know that there is hope for a rewarding life after all of this. She just wants people to know that your life doesn't have to be over because something bad happened to you. Recently, Elizabeth released another book, which is very powerful and inspiring, and it talks about what it takes to overcome trauma, how to find the strength to move on and how to reclaim your life after something like this happens to you. The book is called Where There's Hope and it's a very up close and personal glimpse into her healing process and you know, it's just a heartfelt how-to guide for readers to make peace with the past and embrace the future. There was also a movie made called I Am Elizabeth Smart and I'm pretty sure this is a lifetime movie and it's basically just about what happened to Elizabeth and it's told from her perspective of what she went through during this time and Elizabeth actually was a producer and on-screen narrator of the movie so it's pretty accurate. I haven't watched the movie yet, but it's definitely something that's on my list because people say that it was very well done and just very emotional to watch. And I just feel like there's a difference between saying these things and then watching it acted out. You know, it just feels more real when you see it actually happen on screen. Now, like I've mentioned so many times, I'm sure, Elizabeth is now an advocate and she just wants to help people be more aware of sexual assault, human trafficking, and about abuse. She actually created a foundation called the Elizabeth Smart Foundation in 2011. 
The goal of this foundation is to bring hope and end the victimization and exploitation of sexual assault through education, healing, and advocacy. There's a lot of helpful information on this website, and some of the information that they give is kind of scary. It just kind of opens your eyes and makes you realize how common sexual assault truly is. For example, they state that every 73 seconds, someone in the United States is sexually assaulted, and every nine minutes, that person is a child. Every 73 seconds. I mean, just imagine that. That's absolutely insane, and the fact that every nine minutes, that's a child, it's just really scary, but what she's doing with this foundation is amazing, and I think it's so important to bring awareness to these things, despite how scary they may be, because it's reality. Another difficult statistic to understand is that the average cost of a rape over a survivor's lifetime is $122,000. Now, that money is used to attend therapy, pay off medical bills, find safe housing away from the abuser. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it, but the fact that a rape victim has to pay over $120,000 just to get through it is shocking. Elizabeth offers so many other helpful resources on her website. You can find resources for healing and recovery. You can learn about defining what rape and sexual abuse is. You can find a therapist. You can find resources to understand trauma. I mean, there's just so much on there. She also offers these educational programs called Smart Talks and Smart Defense. So Smart Talks is a podcast where every single Tuesday, Elizabeth speaks with therapists, survivors, and experts as they share stories of empowerment, recovery, and hope. The tagline is, quote, if you or someone you know has ever experienced the horrors of sexual assault, then this podcast is for you. As for Smart Defense, this is a program that offers self-defense training classes for women and for girls. I've actually taken a self-defense class before and I felt like it was really helpful. So if you guys want more information about all of the stuff that she offers, all of this will be linked under my YouTube video as well as on my Instagram. Now, Elizabeth also speaks out about how a woman's worth and her virginity are not related. Because like I mentioned earlier, Elizabeth was worried about losing her virginity to Brian and he kept threatening her and telling her that no one would want her because she was used. So now Elizabeth wants people to know that that's not the case. Even if someone willingly chooses to lose their virginity outside of marriage, that doesn't mean they're not deserving of a happy life and of a happy marriage, which I think is such an important message for her to share. Now, what happened to Elizabeth is proof that there really is life after tragedy. After Elizabeth was rescued, her mother told her the best advice that she could give her. She told her that what happened to her was terrible and that this man was evil and that he stole nine months of her life that she will never get back, but that the best punishment she could give him is to be happy. And that's what she is. Elizabeth is happy now, and at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And with that, that is what happened to Elizabeth Smart. It's a very difficult case to listen to and to talk about, but it's so important to share. At the end of the day, Elizabeth just wants to give people hope that there is life after tragedy. Your life doesn't have to be over because something like this happened to you, and you need to know that there is hope and that you can still be happy. I think all of the advocacy work that Elizabeth is doing is very admiring, and what she's doing is changing lives by educating people about sexual assault and what they can do if they're a victim of abuse or if they know someone that's a victim of this. So as I mentioned, all of her info will be linked under my YouTube video as well as on my Instagram. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to Elizabeth Smart. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel, True Crime Jackie, for full video episodes. You can find me on Instagram at the Jackie Flores and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Thank you again for being here and I will see you all next time. Bye guys.